Good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing our study of what is certainly one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And if you remember from last week when we kind of introduced the chapter, we began by asking the question, how can we escape from the soul-destroying vortex of inverted moralism? And we talked about that issue back in our study of chapter 5. So how can we get out of that soul-destroying vortex and get back on the right path? How can we turn things right side up? And what's kind of the first step or prerequisite to that? What's the first step in turning the upside-down world of inverted moralism right side up? And if you remember from last week, we saw that chapter 6 teaches us that the first step in responding to the challenge of inverted moralism in our society is to recover our awe of the majesty and the holiness of God. We need to recover our awe of his majesty and holiness. Preachers, teachers, parents, all believers need to stop teaching people a distorted, dumbed-down, domesticated view of God and reclaim a high view of God He who is high and exalted, seated on a throne, and holy, holy, holy. We need to stop portraying the Lion of Judah as if he's some sort of domesticated house kitten who exists for our amusement and affirmation. We need to remind people that he is the potter and we are but clay. We exist for him and his glory, not he for us and our comfort. We need to get the created order straight. So as we were reminded last week, it is the majesty and the holiness of God that we need to recover our understanding of because it is the majesty and holiness of God that makes his love, his tender compassion, and his nearness so amazing and so comforting. If you remember from last week, we talked about Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, which says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is amazing grace. If you are contrite, if you are truly sorry for your sin, if you are lowly of spirit, meaning you have humbled yourself and recognized your absolute and total dependence upon the mercy and grace of God, then he who is highly exalted, who is seated on the throne, and who is holy, 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 dwells with you, and he gives life to you. He revives your spirit. He revives your heart. That's what's so amazing about grace, that the high and exalted one also dwells with those who are lowly and contrite of heart. That's what's so amazing about grace. The greatness of God and the grace of God. People need to hear about a majestic God who is near to the brokenhearted. They need to hear about a holy God who forgives the repentant. They need to be taught from Scripture who God really is. And that's what Isaiah 6 is doing for us. Let's Listen again carefully as Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 teaches us about God. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Last week we focused on verses 1 through 2 which describe the majesty of God. Today I want to begin with studying verses 3 through 4 which powerfully describes the holiness of God. So verses 1 through 2 the focus is on the majesty of God and now in verses 3 through 4 the focus is on the holiness of God. Notice what the seraphim cry out one to another in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to think about the fact that of all that could be said about God, of all that the seraphim could praise and honor God for, it is this thing that they praise him for, that he is holy, holy, holy. He is kadosh. He is the holy one, and he is thrice holy. The word holy is repeated three times. Why did the seraphim repeat the word holy three times as they call out one to another? In Hebrew, the repetition of a word turns it into a superlative. It's the idea that if you repeat a word twice, you, you mean the most of something. For example, in 2 Kings 25, verse 15, it talks about gold, gold. The word gold is just repeated twice. Gold, gold. That's the Hebrew way of saying pure gold or the best gold. It's a superlative. And so some scholars think that by repeating the word holy, the seraphim are saying that God is very holy or the most holy. And it is certainly true that repetition is a superlative in Hebrew. But as one scholar points out, the only time there is a threefold repetition is here. If the idea here was simply that the seraphim are saying that God is very holy, then repeating the word twice would have sufficed for that idea. If they wanted to say he's most holy, they could have just said holy, holy is the Lord. So why did the angel say it three times? And the answer is because they are ascribing the highest holiness to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. There are several Trinitarian statements in this chapter, and this is one of them. Our triune God is holy, holy, holy. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Spirit is holy. And lest we have any doubt about the Trinitarian intention of Isaiah 6, we're going to see later on next week that Jesus cites Isaiah 6 and ascribes it to himself. And in the book of John, this passage, John says, is Isaiah speaking about Christ. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are holy, holy, holy. What does it mean, though, when we say that God is holy? The root of the word for holy is the idea of separation. 
To be holy is to be morally perfect, to be separate from anything evil, to be untouched and untainted by evil. And God's holiness is so important that the seraphim continually praise God for it in the throne room of heaven. And not just here in Isaiah chapter 6, but in the book of Revelation. This is something which goes on for all of eternity. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we read the description of what's going on in heaven that was revealed to John. Revelation 4 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle." And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This is the resounding sound of heaven, the continual praise of heaven, glorifying God because he is holy. Holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of his glory. He is the Almighty One, the one who was and is and is to come. This is the throne centric praise of heaven. God is holy. But we need to remind ourselves that. Holiness requires separation from evil. That's what they are affirming about God, that he is separate from evil. He is morally perfect. He is good. And therefore, he is separate from all that is evil and wicked. And that is why the human condition is so dire. God is holy, and we are not he is separated from evil and we are evil. Therefore, as Isaiah is going to tell us in chapter 59, verse 2, our sins have separated us from God. Our iniquity have created a barrier between us and God. Our condition is dire. Our sins have separated us from God, and God is the source of life, of love, of hope, of peace, and of joy. All that we need, all that we desire is found in him, but our sins have separated us from him. We are cut off from life. We are cut off from agape love. We are cut off from hope, from peace, from joy. Our condition is dire because God is holy and we are evil, and to be holy is to be separate from evil. And there is 
absolutely nothing that we can do from our end of that gulf to bridge it. The unholy cannot approach the holy one. The unholy cannot cross the barrier of holiness. This was powerfully symbolized in the Old Testament tabernacle where even the priest, after extensive purifications, when they went in to the Holy of Holies, they would have a rope tied to their waist and bells on their garments so that if the bell stopped twinkling, they could drag the dead body out because the priest had been struck dead for violating the holiness of God. God is holy and we are wicked and therefore we are separated from him. We can't bridge the gap. There's no religion, no priest, no pastor, no guru, no philosopher, no ideology, nothing and no one who can bridge that gap for you. We can't do it. But what we could not do for ourselves, God in his love, grace, and mercy did for us. I'm gonna jump ahead past the prophetic messianic hope to the messianic realization as it is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Listen to what Christ has done for us through his incarnation, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and coming return. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This separation between the Holy One and we who are unholy can only be resolved by a recreation, by a new birth, by the old passing away, the new coming, by being made a new creation, and that only happens if you are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18 now all these things are from God. Where, from whence was the bridge built? From our side, no. From his side, yes. All of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Who was the reconciler? It was God. He, by grace, reconciled us to himself. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, through his substitutionary death, his resurrection. And then he says, and then God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that message to take to the world. And what are we proclaiming to the world? Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? We are ambassadors sent from the heavenly kingdom to the earthly kingdoms. And what are we telling the people of the earthly kingdoms? We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The bridge has been built. Cross it by faith. On what basis is this bridge? Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
There is only one way the unholy can be in the presence of the holy, and that is if they are born again, made a new creature in Christ, and if all of their sins are imputed to Christ and paid for by his death on the cross, and if his divine righteousness is credited to our account, only on that basis can someone who has sinned enter the presence of the sinless one. Jesus, the divine redeemer, lived a perfectly holy life and then died to to bear the penalty of our sin. And so those who are united with him by faith are forgiven and clothed in his divine righteousness. You have no righteousness. He has divine righteousness. You need his righteousness and you obtain it by faith. Jesus has bridged the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But the question is, have you crossed the bridge? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you entered the door? Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. You cannot come to God except through him. Have you crossed the bridge founded by the cross? guaranteed by the resurrection and obtained by faith. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 is a reminder to us of the majesty and holiness of God and we need to stand in awe of his majesty and holiness and that is the key first step to escaping the soul-destroying vortex of inverted moralism. So God's Majesty and holiness were the key themes of verses one through four. His majesty in verses one through two, his holiness in verses three through four. And so now we're gonna turn our attention this week and next time we're together to verses five through 13. Isaiah six, verses five through 13. And as we observe the text together, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that verses five through 13 are organized around Isaiah's three responses to his encounter with God. It's organized around Isaiah's three responses to his encounter with God. There is an identical phrase which appears three times in verses five through 13, and it is the phrase, then I said. So in verse five, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Then skip down to verse eight. God says, who will go for us? Who will I send? And verse eight, the second part of verse eight says, then I said, here am I, send me. And then in verse 11, it says, then I said, Lord, how long? So this key phrase, then I said, is repeated three times and that really is how the passage is organized. And this is in itself instructive. Because what it teaches us is that the reality of the majesty and holiness of God demands a response from man. You must respond to this great reality. So what will your response be? The majesty and the holiness of God requires a response from you. The only question is, what will your response be? Isaiah's three responses are going to teach us three things that we need in order to escape the downward and damning vortex of inverted moralism. How can we turn things around in our families, our churches, our communities, and in our own hearts? We need to respond to God's holiness and his majesty the way Isaiah 
responded. So we're going to look this week and next at three solutions to the crisis of inverted moralism. Number one, we need to respond to God's holiness with repentance. That's what we'll be talking about today. And then next time we'll talk about our need to respond to God's call with readiness and to respond to God's verdict with respect. We need to respond to God's holiness with repentance, to his call with readiness, and to his verdict with respect. So let's look at this first solution to the crisis of inverted moralism, which is found in Isaiah's first response to the majesty and holiness of God in verses five through seven. Read along with me. Verses five through seven. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs he touched my mouth with it and said Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. To reverse the downward spiral of inverted moralism, we must first respond to God's holiness with repentance. This is the key first step, to repent. We must respond to God's holiness with repentance repentance when Isaiah comes face to face with the majesty and the holiness of God he immediately realizes he's in big trouble immediately he says then I said woe is me I am undone I am ruined that word ruined can be translated undone lost or doomed woe is me I'm doomed that word comes from the verbal root for silence I'm going to be brought to an end. My mouth will be shut forever. And in this context, it describes the silence of death. When Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and exalted, holy, 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 he immediately realizes that he is about to be struck dead. The grandeur of God's majesty, the light of God's holiness exposed the true depths of Isaiah's fallenness and sin and he instantly knew what Romans 6.23 teaches which is that the wages of sin is death. He sees God's majesty, he understands God's holiness and in the blinding light of God's holiness the light is shown on his fallenness, the light is shown on his sinfulness and he responds the way he should have by saying woe is me for I am ruined. I'm about to come to the silence of death. Why? Why does he instantly know that he's deserving of death? He explains, he says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I want you to notice that Isaiah ascribes his impending doom to both individual sin 
and corporate sin. Individual sin and corporate sin. He is a man of unclean lips. That's individual sin. But he also lives amongst people of unclean lips. That's corporate sin or what we call theologically original sin. The Bible teaches that we are condemned on the basis of both the depraved nature of all mankind which results from Adam's fall and on the basis of our individual ratification of Adam's sin which occurs when we, just like him, knowingly and willingly break a clear command of God. We are condemned on the basis of original sin and individual sin of the depraved nature of mankind and our ratification of that sinfulness by knowing and willing violations of commands of God. I want you to listen to how Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, discusses both original sin and individual sin as the basis for human condemnation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the reality. Jesus says in John 3 that people who don't believe are condemned already. They're already condemned. They're just awaiting the carrying out of the sentence. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. See, this is your choices, your lifestyle, your desires, your actions, your words, your thoughts. You walked according to what? The course of this fallen world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You willingly walked and lived according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's on you. That's on me. Then he says, verse three, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is individual sin. But listen to how he finishes verse three. He says, we were walking according to the devil's ways, the ways of the flesh, the ways of the world. And he says, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See, you are a sinner both by nature and by choice. The phrase you formerly walked refers to each person's individual sin and the phrase by nature children of wrath even as the rest refers to original sin. I want you to listen to how Romans chapter five verse 12 describes the connection between original sin in the fall of Adam, individual sin, and then the sentence of death. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's the fall of Adam, that's original sin. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so original sin brought death into the world. But listen to the last half of the the verse. And so death spread to all men why because all sinned because all sinned as was said earlier in the book of Romans all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God 
So in Romans 5.12, the first part of the verse says, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. That's original sin. As, as one preacher put it, we are all on the bus that Adam drove off the cliff. We're all on the bus that Adam drove off the cliff. Well, that's not fair, someone may say. Well, every time you take the wheel, you head for the same cliff. The second part of the verse says that the reason death spread to all men was because all sinned. The sad reality is that we all ratify Adam's fall by committing similar sins ourselves. So we are justly condemned because we are sinners both by nature and by choice. Our problem is not just that we sin, but that we are sinners. We are evil by our fallen nature and by our personal willing, knowing choices. Let me ask you this. Why do mosquitoes become objects of your wrath? Why? Why are mosquitoes the objects of your wrath? Not every mosquito has bitten you, but they're all bloodsuckers, aren't they? The reason a mosquito is subject to your wrath is twofold. First, it is a bloodsucker by nature. And second, given the opportunity, it will bite you. And you know that. It is a bloodsucker, and it's buzzing around with other bloodsuckers, and so your wrath is directed towards them all. That's what Isaiah is realizing when he cries out in verse five. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. To put it in the analogy of our illustration, he's saying I'm a blood-sucking mosquito and I am swarming around with other blood-sucking mosquitoes. Woe is me, I'm undone. Now let me ask another question of the text and try to answer it for you. Before we kind of move on to verse six, why does Isaiah focus on his lips being sinful? I mean, of all he could say, he's like, woe is me, I'm undone because my lips are unclean and I live amongst people with unclean lips. Why does he focus on the mouth, on the lips? Well, I want to first remind you that the gift of speech is one of the key aspects of the image of God that was given to man alone not to any of the rest of creation it's something it's one of the key things which distinguish those made in the image of God from the beasts and the animals abstract speech the ability to communicate Abstract future and past ideas is a manifestation of the image of God. The one who was and is and is to come has given us the ability to think and to communicate using abstract speech concepts about the past, the present, and the future. And speech is a powerful ability which can be used for good or for evil. The beasts and the animals, many of them have more 
powerful limbs than we do, for example. They, are fat, they can run faster, jump higher, they can even fly. We cannot. But only humans have the power of abstract speech and therefore the ability to spread ideas and to make plans. In other words, God has entrusted to mankind as his image bearers the stewardship of truth. Truth about him. Truth about the created world. And that stewardship is centered in our lips, in our mouth, in the power of speech. So how we use the gift of speech is a key element of our accountability before God. And this is found throughout the scriptures. In the Psalms, it says that only those who speak truth can ascend to his holy hill. In the book of James, it says the tongue is like a rudder which steers a whole person's life like the rudder steers a ship. In the Gospels, we read that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And in Romans chapter 3, we read that the mouth of man is like the opening of a grave. It's like the, the entrance to a tomb. The death inside comes out through the mouth. The stench of sin and death emerges through our mouth. You want to talk about bad breath. Our speech is often a stench in the nostrils of God. So I want, to li- I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 12 and to what Jesus says about the power of the tongue and of the mouth. Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, but I tell you, Jesus, what do you want to tell us? I tell you, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. There's someone who's always listening. Everything you've ever muttered under your breath, everything you've said to someone, you're gonna give an account for it all, even the ones you didn't mean You're going to give an accounting even for every careless word. Listen to what he says, though, in verse 37. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is why Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. The confession of our lips is the basis for either our condemnation or our justification. And this is affirmed in regard to salvation by Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what is said about how a person is saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. By your words you will be condemned or justified. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With your heart you believe and with your mouth you confess. And it says with your mouth you confess, resulting in salvation. This is why it is so sad that we in our churches have gotten into the habit of calling people to faith in Christ in the following way. I want every head bowed. 
I want every eye closed and no one looking around. And there, without saying a word to anyone, in the quietness of your heart, come to faith in Christ. No one looking around so that no one will know. But you know, maybe, maybe just slip up your hand so at least the preacher knows so he can kind of count how many, you know, you know, a few more notches on his ministry belt. It's terrible. It's terrible. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. Do you want Christ, the advocate, to speak out loud your name in defense, his name's written in the Lamb's book of life, or do you want him to remain silent? Whatever you want him to do, you do here. With the mouth, Romans 10.10 says, a person confesses resulting in salvation. There is no such thing as a private faith. There are a lot of people, you know, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, going to, to school and for years with, with guys and at some point through some random connection, I'd find out they're a member of a good church. Like I, like I went to school with this guy for like years. I never knew he was a Christian. And, you know, you go up to him and like, hey, I, you know, I just found out you're, you know, you go to such and such church. Are you a believer? Oh, yes, I'm a believer. Well, how come I never knew? It's, I have a private faith. No, 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 no. You have a dead faith. You have a dead faith. Isaiah focuses on the uncleanness of human lips because he knows that it is with our mouths that we express faith or unbelief, that we speak truth or lies, that we manifest righteousness or wickedness. And so he is rightly alarmed in verse 5. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That which has come out of our heart through our mouth has been wicked. He knows that the wages of sin is death. He knows he was guilty of using the power of the gift of speech in unclean and unrighteous ways and he also lived amongst people who were similarly guilty and so he rightly cries out, woe is me for I am ruined. I've seen the king, Yahweh of armies, the holy one. I'm about to die. Well, what happens next? Something amazing. Verse six, then, see what's expected here is then Isaiah was struck dead as a sinner in the presence of the holy one. That's what's expected. But something amazing happens. Then, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. This is astounding. What Isaiah could not do for himself, God did for him. By grace and grace alone, notice nothing that Isaiah does solves his problem. It's something that God does for him. God, by grace, gives the order to one of the seraphim, and the seraphim takes a burning coal from the mercy seat. 
And that mercy seat foreshadowed the coming atoning sacrifice of the Messiah. And the angel takes a coal from that mercy seat and flies to Isaiah and touches his lips with it. And when the seraphim says your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven, that word forgiven is the Hebrew word for atonement. Your sin is atoned for. By grace, God provided atonement for Isaiah from the mercy seat, granted him full and free forgiveness. Modier comments, quote, the live coal which was brought to Isaiah was fire from the altar. The perpetual fire mentioned in Leviticus 6 on the altar went beyond symbolizing divine wrath for the altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice according to Leviticus 17. It holds together the ideas of the atonement, propitiation, and satisfaction required by God and of the forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation needed by his people. All of this is achieved through substitutionary sacrifice. And it is brought to Isaiah, encapsulated in the single symbol of the live coal. This is a powerful symbolic portrayal. That which took place on the mercy seat, the substitutionary sacrifice, the coal from that altar is taken and touched to him. So when Isaiah was confronted with the majesty and holiness of God, he responds with contrition and repentance. And God, by grace, provides atonement and forgiveness for him, and his sins are taken away. So the lesson from verses 5 through 7 is a simple one. We need to respond to God's holiness with repentance. Repentance. That is the need of the hour. The need of our day is to respond to God's holiness with repentance, to recover our awe of God's majesty and his holiness, and then to respond with humble, contrite hearts and to receive the forgiveness provided by atonement which is given to us by grace. Next time we're together, we'll talk about Isaiah's second response when he responds to God's call with readiness and his third response when he responds to God's verdict with respect. But we're gonna come now to the Lord's table and I wanna invite the men to come and prepare to serve. As they're coming, I wanna ask you the simple question. Have you responded to God's holiness with repentant faith? Has the coal touched your lips? Has the sacrifice of Christ been imputed to you on the basis of faith? Lord, I pray that no one would leave here in a status of woe and of doom, but that by grace, the atoning sacrifice would be applied to them that they could have their hearts, their lips touched with the burning coal from the altar of the mercy seat. Lord, save on the basis of grace through faith. We come now to your table, O Lord, and we're amazed to do so because we are dining with you 
as father and friend. This is only possible because of the new birth, being made new creations, and all of that was done for us by Christ, who died, who rose again, who ascended, who is our advocate, and who is returning to judge the living and the dead. It is to you, therefore, O God, that we give this expression of our gratitude and our worship and our praise as we gather around your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, please come and serve.